Welcome one and all to another TMG interview. My name is Paul Preston here with my brother in print from the movieguys.net, Ray Scalacci, and he has tipped me off as to who we're talking to today. Uh, he said she'd be a great guest to the interview, and based on my research, he's right. She's been involved in animation, visual effects, indie film, Marvel, Technicolor, and she runs her own production company, Hardy Howell. Let's hear all about that juggling act that is the career of Katie Hooten. Yay! Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. And, you know, I want to talk about Marvel. Honestly, what is it, noon on Friday? I'd be doing that now anyway. Uh, <laughs> noon most days, one, two, three, four, etc. But um, I, I, when a filmmaker comes on here, we usually talk about what's new. And some, a lot of times people are plugging something that's new. So uh, correct me if I've missed a few of the new things you're up to, but um, something that's pretty fresh. Last year, you were appointed head of studio at Technicolor's pre-production studio. So tell us what that job entails. Well, I'm here in Culver City, California, and uh, we are a, a kind of a funky little studio for this company. We are a pre-production service studio tacked on the front of a huge visual effects machine, which is Technicolor. So we have many brands under one umbrella. Uh, we have MPC, which is known for huge films like uh, Lion King and Jungle Book and um, we have a brand called Mr. X. They're doing a ton of episodic work as well as um, film. And then we have an animation team called Micros. And the pre-production side services art and visualization needs, uh, sometimes for those brands, sometimes for um, other random projects that come our way. So uh, we, got, we like to get in with the filmmakers really early Sometimes there's not even a script. Sometimes the visual work that we do in advance informs the script writing. And we jump in before green light sometimes uh, just to help build out the world, build out some very early ideas, maybe play with some action items, um, action ideas to get things going. And then uh, many times service a green light or beyond that, um, start very early so that they can do a more accurate bidding process for the visual effects that comes later. Okay, so this, that brings tons of questions. Uh, <laughs> so for, first of all, I'll, I'll say the departments that report to you, which is always exciting to hear about how, you know, how important you are. The art department, <laughs> visualization and real-time production, VFX, supervisors and business development. So a lot of people are throughout the day are going, damn it, get Katie, right? So, and then things are getting solved. Yeah, some of those people were more like um, roommates uh, and they function on their own business development that I work with here. They have an enormous job of bringing in uh, work for our entire global company. And so it's more like, hey, are you guys good over there? Um, but they definitely have their own machine going. And then the VFX supervisors also report to an executive producer that's separate from me. Um, is that but at Technicolor or at per Technicolor? Okay. Yeah, at Technicolor. Um, but they serve as a resource to us as we jump in. It's always to our advantage to have as much information up front as possible. And so a lot of times the VFX supervisors will be uh, the key mouthpiece for that. Sometimes we're not talking with the director right away. And we'll have the VFX soup who has been in some key creative kickoffs and they can say to us, look, we want to supply some early looks, some early visualization. Uh, to show the client or the potential client that we really understand what they're trying to do with this film, or we understand that there's a new technical tool they want to try. We want to test it out in advance. And so we'll go down that road with them. Uh, 
And a lot of uh, the technology, Ray and I were talking about this the other day, it's so new that I think I, I used to have a lot of nerves about um, what we're pitching and that I personally couldn't sit down and click the keys and make it happen. But it's the understanding in my role, I consider myself as someone that removes barriers for people. And so I don't necessarily have to understand the highly skilled um, technical tools that they are operating or that they're developing, but I can learn the dependencies to find out what happens before what, what's getting in the way of what, what conversations should happen as early as possible, what ones are okay to leave down the road we don't know yet, and sort of start to categorize uh, and support the process and on a daily basis see like what's getting in the way of us moving forward with this conversation, the creative mix of uh, how we're putting the team together or how we're uh, envisioning this movie to roll out. You were talking about the, the trouble, or I, I don't know if it would be called trouble, but what you went through with uh, Infinity War and then Endgame at the same time. Yeah, uh, that was just such a massive production because it was multi-year and multi-movie, a lot of secrecy. And so they were shooting both films at the same time, doing a lot of the shooting in Atlanta. Um, I had de deployed teams there and we also had a large team in LA. Uh, and sometimes uh, there are limited script pages that only certain uh, people on the crew are able to receive because it is so uh, so secretive. And then, of course, there are reshoots and reworks of, um, you know, third act of any film is always the one up for discussion. Is it really taking you to the destination that the first two acts have, have set up? And is it going to be gratifying enough? And so there was a lot of third act work done um, on both films. And then you run into A-list actors and their availability and um, leaning into VFX to be able to fill the gap sometimes for availability to have all those actors um, together in this massive uh, fight at the end, you know. Paul, um, and I've, I had mentioned to Katie, it was so, so interesting because she said A-list actors and before Marvel, none of those people were A-list actors. That's really remarkable. Yeah, or I might mean, have had a... Do you want to get me started on Marvel? Because I get some other Technicolor <laughs> questions. I mean, I love Marvel. But, but going back to Technicolor for a second, because uh, there were so many things you said, process is the thing that just I'm fascinated by because yeah. everyone kind of knows the process of an actor, a director, I mean, maybe they do, but still there's fascinating things to learn about, but it's all the other people that a lot of times, you know, I'd like to, if you listen to a show like this, hopefully you'll learn something about that process. So you talk about helping and breaking down barriers, which is a great way to phrase that for a filmmaker in terms of, I want to achieve this, you jump in and lift the, any kind of barrier they have that's in their way of making it happen. So how does that happen? Does the studio get a production and then come to Technicolor? Do you just have your fingers in a million relationships in the industry now? So where it's like, do you just know that you're the place to go? Or does someone who's like, I got some money and I don't know, you guys? I mean, how does it, how does it work like that? It depends on, uh, there are different goals, I think, to start. Um, relationships are pretty key. We hope we have repeat clients that have worked with us in the past and want to come back and work with us again. But yeah, always having to grow it. It's a really competitive business. And this time in particular is uh, very competitive in terms of 
luring clients who may have had a great experience with us, but it always comes back to like price point and um, what they'd like to do for the resources that they have. Um, but in terms of getting started creatively, like I said earlier, we don't always know um, what they have to start with. And sometimes the timeline's so crunched that they need to get started before there's uh, a finished script. So our team might get a draft, but with cautions and with sort of earmarked for changes that are coming, sometimes we can help with that. For example, Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, little spoil, but um, it plays with scale a lot, right? It plays um, with things that are growing and shrinking. So like there's a whole car chase there that's really fun, but that car chase started with our team where they said, we're not really sure how it's going to play out, but we do know we're gonna play with scale and the car chase to show us some stuff, show us some gags. And then those things were able to grow into um, a really fun, fast sequence uh, in San Francisco. So that's an example where there's an idea and filmmakers might know where something's going, but they don't really know um, exactly how it's gonna button up in the end. And visualization really helps with that because sometimes you don't know until you can see it. Sometimes, you know, you know, as, as screenwriters as well, that, that Ray, especially you were saying, um, sometimes you don't know who the person is on the other end of the script that's reading it and you don't really know if they're going to be seeing what you're saying. Sometimes the exposition for the action sequences we'll see will be like, they fight. It's like, what does that mean? Then what happens? Jackie um, Chan did that. Like his, <laughs> it would be dialogue, action, dialogue, action. Then just a page just said, Jackie Chan fight sequence. And yeah. you knew he and his guys were going to come in to take care of it. And then back to dialogue, action, dialogue, action. Yeah, so there are some super fun things that happen if you do end up with that page that says like they fight or whatever it is. I've had a chance to work a lot with stunt viz, which is um, really interesting. And it's usually a team of people who are former gymnasts or wrestlers or um, whatever they might be, uh, parkour experts. And they'll work out some moves in a sequence. And sometimes we can intercut that with uh, some low poly CG moves that will intercut with uh, fights that they see. They can show that to the director and the director can give comment on, well, I was seeing a camera move here, or I'd like to see it from this angle or more of this, less of that. If it's a, a character that has appendages that will have to be added later, you know, as um, in CG, then you have to make room for that and figure out how do you show that? How do you plan for that? And then we try to keep in mind, everyone needs to be very cognizant that eventually you have to actually shoot it. And so how do we make it achievable? Uh, and that leads more into tech viz where you're talking about um, lenses that you wanna use exact uh, dolly track length and uh, the space you have to work with. For example, in, in game, um, there is a sort of a somber scene that follows. I'm gonna just go with in case someone hasn't seen it yet. So there's one person in the world who hasn't seen it yet. Sort of a somber scene um, where basically the entire cast is saying goodbye um, to a character. And we had to provide tech viz in many different ways for that situation because it happens on the edge of a lake. They're existing trees. They knew they wanted to shoot it very thoughtfully on a crane and we, did an entire setup where every character was accounted for and we were able to place them, you know, each person here and there very carefully um, to run that sort of uh, 
crane shot through the crowd uh, in a number of ways to avoid natural things that were existing there by the lake, as well as um, what might be needed uh, to slot in in CG later. So there's so many different reasons for visualizing something in advance before you get there with a bunch of equipment and people and and try to figure it out from there, you know. You and were talking. You have uh, Alan oh, Silvestri scoring the hell out of that moment. Uh, I mean, if you haven't seen Endgame by now, I know. If you haven't seen Endgame by now, I, I, I can't help you. What, I mean, yeah, or maybe I don't want to know yet. Uh, <laughs> Katie was also talking about actors, you know, having to play to tennis balls and such. Yeah. Okay. And that's something that I find completely fascinating as somebody that started long ago um, with an acting background being a theater major in college and, and doing some limited acting in LA early on to get the raw plates back from a major film that no one's seen yet. And of course it's always shrouded in secrecy and, and NDAs and all of that. Um, and to see it basically looks like community theater. It's like heavy green and blue screen, a couple of actors, someone in a weird mocap suit um, if they're playing a very tall, very large character, they might have like a stick up their back with a face up here uh, of their character so that there's an eye line for the actors to react to. And to my amazement, I mean, it looks so low budget and so janky. And then you've got actors playing to nothing. They're crying, they're spitting blood. They're, uh, they're you know, doing an amazing job of keeping focused in the moment. And that's when I feel like I would strongly argue to anyone that says like, ah, people who are in superhero movies, like lame, it's not real acting. And it's like, oh man, if you see these raw plates and you see that they have nothing, no stimulus on the other side, you know, and they're, they are selling the moment. It's pretty mind blowing. Yeah. Tell that to Martin Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not going to tell anything to Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Katie Hooten said, Marty, that, no. Uh, no, there's a, there, I, I told you, you know, I'm behind that 100%. I mean, Neil Sethi, I think his name was, who played Mowgli in the Favreau uh, redo of The Jungle Book. He had nothing there. I mean, he, now, to be fair, Alan Troutman was, is an actor who was on set with him. We interviewed him here for the movie guys a while back. Mm -hmm. And he had like Bagheera's head and he'd bounce around and he'd, you know, give the kids something to look at and he'd like say the line. So he was technically acting, but I mean, there's no trees. There's no, there's nothing that real there that was what eventually was in the film. So I'm always a fan of support that, award that, give something uh, yeah. to where you recognize how hard that is. I think there's puppets and things that they were, that are used in that moment. One of my favorite uh, movie stories early on uh, for watching a child actor have a very real visceral response was from um, Close Encounters. And there's, you may have heard that, this, but uh, there's a moment where the little boy comes into the kitchen and you don't see what happens. You just see on his face what's happening and then you see all the cupboards are open. Do you remember that moment? Yeah. yeah. In the movie? Yeah. And um, he was told, I think Spielberg told him I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen, but something weird is going to happen. And I just want you to react to it. And from what I have read and heard, um, someone was in like a, 
a gorilla costume, like a pink gorilla costume or something, just sort of like spinning around. And, and you can just see this weird uh, reaction on the actor's face. Uh, he's so little, but he's, he's doing all the things you want him to do where he's like, not sure if it's funny or is it scary or unexpected, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you've ever watched Henry Thomas's audition tape for E.T., it's on YouTube. Oh, and Spielberg's yeah. just basically acting with him. And that, I mean, he tells him in, on camera, you got it. <laughs> like, yeah. you, you don't hear that a lot. But uh, he, well, there's no doubt he has it, too. Uh, it's, I mean, sometimes you get the kid actor just hits a home run, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, the last thing about Technicolor. Now, this is the company that started, like, film processes back in the early 1900s. So they've just thankfully had this forward vision to roll with the times and have become a major effects house as well. I think that's pretty, uh, I mean, moving out of the color for film space, clearly that's moved on. So yeah. good for them. And they've put up in the, the pre-production studio is pretty new, right? It is fairly new um, the last several years. I mean, it grew out of MPC, which was the larger visual effects company that operates out of London. But now we have sites kind of all over the world in Berlin and in Paris and there's um, a substantial site in Bangalore and in Mumbai so uh, we've got several locations but the thing that I think is fantastic about Technicolor and you hit it is like it is an over 100 year old company and has always been a pioneer in filmmaking and we are trying to use that to our advantage here because I think on one hand, um, the, the trap is to be too corporate and to be slow and to be too big. Um, but I think we're trying to use every advantage where there is uh, resource to try things and to grow, to um, invest in technology, to invest in talent, and then to not forget that we are a global operation. So ours is is hunkered down here in LA and we try to have a very local boutique style presence where, um, you know, I hope people would call me and just know me on a first name basis and it's not some big company they're calling. It's like, it's me and it's my, my people. And, you know, there's just a group of us here and you can stop by or you can call us anytime. But at the same time, we have to operate behind the scenes with every resource we have because it's very competitive. And so um, we are, constantly trying to uh, envision how we can work better as a, a global company, which means using more of the day, um, pricing competitively. I mean, all of that stuff is a little bit of a bore, but it does have impact overall when you're talking about like, a lot of my heart is with independent filmmaking and uh, with storytellers that wanna be able to have the resource to tell the stories they wanna tell. And so it has to be affordable. If, if you're going to bring in fresh voices, new perspective, it can't just be for a huge tentpole every now and then. We really want to be able to give resource to new filmmakers as well. It's a big released film that you don't have any NDA on or anything that you guys worked on. Like what's the what recent effects? Oh, I'm super proud of Cruella that's out. Oh, okay. I don't know if anybody has, um, if you've had a chance to catch it. It's been yeah. out for a few weeks. So um, that's just to give you a timeline of Technicolor. You know, uh, they boasted that Wizard of Oz was in Technicolor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Effects you see in Cruella, same people. Yeah. Same house, yeah. same label, brand. Yeah. Correct? I, the same brand. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
may not the same people as that 100 year old guy working on Corella. <laughs> he really but, yeah. needs to retire. No, it's the same company. It's very exciting. Um, and we have a really great relationship with Disney. We do a lot of work with Disney. And what I love about Cruella is we started uh, with art, with the art department with that, you know, um, gosh, it may have been like a year and a half or maybe two years ago. And uh, we were doing work on that film up to just a few months ago in the art department as well. And so there's different times when we jump in to help with something. Um, we did a lot of post viz for the movie because um, there's a lot of puppy work that is, uh, leaning on CG puppies. And so that's really fun too. Um, just to see sort of the planning that we were able to be involved in. It's such a stylish film, such a strong point of view. So um, we're really proud of the work we did on that one. I didn't think the dogs were especially impressive. Sometimes, you know, the rubbery <laughs> movement and everything you can kind of, and the, the sort of flat fur, you can tell right away that a dog isn't real, but there were some real convincing, you know, like it uh, took me a while to go, oh, hang on a second. That, that move might have been just a little sort of human reflective of the cartoon that, that the, or the animated film that the, the whole genre came from. But yeah. Uh, yeah, they've certainly advanced from many moons ago, which is great. Yeah. yeah, good job on all that. And the flaming dress was cool. I don't know. Who yeah, did that, but, super, super cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and then one quick mention of other thing than Marvel, uh, because I want to shout out to Love, Death and Robots. Although yeah. I don't know if you're involved in season two, but season two just came out. But so if you go there to watch that and you dip into season one, because it's easy to do because these are shorts, animated shorts. And I love the fact that, I mean, I could go on about my problems I have with Netflix and YouTube and places like that. But you can't fit shorts a lot of times into uh, network programming you know your half hour or one hour schedule so i'm glad that they find a home in these streaming platforms and love death and robots is just that tim miller david fincher and other producers creating um a, sh a short series that supposedly came out of their um want to do a remake of heavy metal the classic movie and so yeah. ray you'll want to see these if you haven't and um, have. you have i have seen oh you have okay good uh yeah. So tell me about getting involved with that. I think you did effects with Tim Miller on Terminator Dark Fate. Is that what brought you over to Love, Death, and Robots? Um, actually, I came over specifically for Love, Death, and Robots. Um, there was just one particular episode that had live action involved. Uh, all the other ones were completely animated. And so that one I was brought on as producer. It was the one that, um, that Tim was directing. And so he was directing simultaneously while he was um, gearing up for Terminator. So we did a lot of remote work and um, uh, it was my first experience working heavily with live action plates and, and CG on top of that. So there, I had a bit of a learning curve, but it was uh, a great experience. I loved being able to work with him on it. I think he's like a fantastic visionary and um, it was it was awesome and then so while i was there at blur studios which is tim's studio i was able to help with a few oh, extra right? things sorry i was yeah. taking it back tim miller owns blur yeah yeah oh cool yeah and that's go. right uh down the road from where i am right now from technicolor we're neighbors um i just try to work in my neighborhood basically <laughs> i ride my bike <laughs> to work i'm too lazy to get you in got the a car. five million dollar job you'll make five million dollars you have to come to santa clarita <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's where Hello. I live. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, sorry. Anyway, yeah. Uh, no. So, um, yeah, that's 
that's his studio with his wife, Jen Miller, and uh, they're doing some super creative stuff there. I'm a big fan of what they do. And so it was an honor to be able to work with them. And um, he was on the other side of the world, you know, prepping and then shooting Terminator. But anyway, um, yeah, I think it's great that there's a space for an anthology like that to exist. And I really look forward to checking out season two. I haven't done it yet. And it won an Emmy. Did, uh, was your name on that? No. Just a cog in a wheel. I was going to say, Katie's got all this experience with, uh, tremendous experience with animation. I mean, you were the uh, post-production coordinator for high-profile films like uh, Spirited Away and Lilo and Stitch. And you were also heavily involved with a big hit, Hoodwinked, you and yeah. your, your husband and your brother. Yeah, Hoodwinked was really a family affair. Um, my two brothers were the creators of that. We had a really small team. I had been doing a few years at Disney and was able to pop over. My brothers and I grew up making films as kids, like eight millimeter films running around the neighborhood and, and uh, very Spielbergian <laughs> with our uh, <laughs> projects and uh, big ambitions and we had a friend who was our pyro expert who was like a fifth grader who lit our card table on fire and uh you know we we had my mom put on the cap and the trench coat to be the villain for the driving scenes because everyone who was doing the movie was like 12. so um we did a lot of that growing up and so it's been really cool to work together with better stuff and more experience um, as we've gotten older. So Hoodwinked was, um, yeah, it, it was the first independently funded, widely released animation film of its kind. And well, I'll give you, I'll give numbers uh, for the listener on that. Uh, $110 million worldwide on a $30 million budget, which you don't get from anime. I still don't understand why animation is so expensive we don't have sets and costumes and actors but i get it there's a huge team and lots of expensive software i guess but it was actually made for yeah hoodwink oh. was made for under nine million what so. oh wikipedia how dare you <laughs> misrepres oh, I box office were... mojo i think it was they misrepresent you there yeah no it was um it was a bit of a like bubble gum and and popsicle sticks kind of production we had animators primarily in the Philippines that were using off-the-shelf software, and a lot of them were student animators. Um, so there were, it was very labor-intensive in terms of um, there was a lot of learning on the job that was happening with that. And th like to this day, yes, the animation is really rough, um, but what has stood the test of time has been the story that endures and the humor. And um, that's really what we're most proud of is the, the creative idea and the implementation of that idea and I, I it was interesting because at the time when we had finished that film there were only nine of us in the united states that were doing that film and like half of them were my immediate family and yeah. then the rest of the team was uh, in the philippines and we finished a little bit in india and we went to a, an animation panel that was being hosted at dreamworks at the time and someone asked the last question of the night to the panel and it was like you know directors of all their features and it was in their fancy screening room and we had just driven from our little crappy um, production room in Burbank to go to this panel and someone asked what is the future of animation and this would have been like maybe 
2004 or something. And someone on the panel said, I think there's gonna be an independent group or groups that come and they're gonna kick our butts. They're gonna shock us that they can do this without the overhead and they can do it without uh, a heavily moneyed machine and that's going to change everything. And we sort of felt this like, electricity in our aisle because we felt like that's us we're doing it um and so it sort of i think it upset the um the whole structure of how animation was done because now a lot of companies are doing it independently and i think very well a lot of them very well um, but at the time, no one had really done a full feature in that way outside of maybe Veggie Tales, which wasn't completely independent at the time. So anyway, it was a, a proud moment. And that's been sort of our biggest um, foot in the door as a company. Uh, my husband and my brother and myself uh, continuing to develop and, and pitch original content. And Tim and Todd, my partners, they are uh, writer directors together. And so a lot of our opportunities in, in animation. And so we spend quite a bit of time developing and pitching animation for that reason. And that's Hardy Howe Films, That's right? Hardy Howe, yeah, you yeah. can check them out. <laughs> I knew uh, of Hoodwinked, I know of Hoodwinked. I never knew of its impact until I started oh, doing yeah. a little research on you for this. I mean, this every research area I found on the web was talking about it, you know, made Hoodwinked, which by the way, was one of the most impactful uh, movies of, of in, animation movies in the last you know, 30 years or whatever, because of that animation movement, it sparked in, in indie animation. And I wish other genres, other studios, other companies would get that idea. My friend, Mike uh, J. Nichols, who's an editor and a friend who's always, who comes on this podcast a lot, said that the $30 million Star Wars movie will easily be the best one. If they just mm -hmm. knock that down to 30 million and really focus on everything else, we'll have a fantastic Star Wars movie, uh, again, like the first in, the first three were and i like the 2016 ghostbusters movie with Kristen wig and melissa McGrath. it's a very funny movie you watch it again especially enjoy all the jokes in it you get past the fact of all the the markers it has to hit with getting the fourth member getting their headquarters getting the car <laughs> getting their first thing you know you kind of that's so familiar you lose track of the fact that there's a bunch of great jokes in there but the biggest problem the movie had was its cost if they made that for 30 million and it made 150 Everyone would be screaming for a sequel. Instead, it makes 150, but it costs 130. And I yeah, just yeah. wish like all the other genres would learn from that type of model that you set forward in animation. Trim it down, be brilliant anyway, and and have the people, because the story is so fascinating, crying for more, and have the studios dying to back you because you're a win for them. Yeah. Anyway, there's no question there. I'm ranting. <laughs> just a statement. <laughs> I'll disagree with you. <laughs> uh, did did you you get into your appointment at Technicolor and then COVID? Yeah. Like, congratulations. Uh, how does how does that immediately affect your work? And but it seems like you've come out the other side of it with a job. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that I know of. They just can't find me. I keep moving moving rooms in the building so that I keep my job. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're that, gonna fire was, her uh, tomorrow, I guess. <laughs> we can't find her. Try and find her in the AM. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, what a wild experience for everyone. But what I, I think the the great takeaway is there are things that were just a straight no before COVID, like 
can we have a team working from home? No, absolutely not. It's a complete, um, you know, security issue. We're a content secure company that would be impossible. No one would agree to it. But then all of a sudden it's like, well, if we're doing the work, everyone needs to agree to certain um, security protocols and we can audit that. And just like that, we have to set everybody up from home. Uh, and we thought like, oh, gee, this is going to be a, the weirdest month ever. And then it turns out to be like 14, 15 months. Uh, yeah. So for me, the, the, uh, the key opportunity in that moment was communication. And I think that is across any industry, but especially for what we did at our studio, making sure that we have kind of redundancies in communication. Don't just tell somebody, but reach out to them repeatedly. Um, not And not just about the content, not just about the work, but making sure like emotionally are people doing okay? Because I think we all sort of had a surprise assessment about how energizing it can be just to even pass someone in the hallway or have that little bit of water cooler conversation in the kitchen when you're getting your coffee. And it just sort of invigorates when you get back to your desk and you're working on your, your scene or your own assignments. Um, and not having that, we had to find other ways to just connect ran about random stuff, you know, connect about personal stuff. And that's been a really important part of our studio engagement is to try to figure out how do we keep the humanity in our work where People can go in a silo and do their their shots and they can get remote feedback from their supervisor, but we wanna make sure they're also being touched in a human way to feel like they're part of a team because that's, um, that's part of the fun of building something together. Is I think filmmaking is a massive teamwork operation, you know? Is Technicolor one of those Pixar type campuses? You guys have like a jungle gym and a basketball court coloring books, a VR thing just in the lobby? We do not. And oh. I desperately want some of that. No, we do you have go. a ping pong table. There you have go. Some good snacks. Oh, yeah. Big it. on the snacks. Well, you got the cereal <laughs> wall with the different tubes of cereal you kind of load into the bowl. Oh, man, you have so many good ideas. Been to these places. Been to DreamWorks. Been to the Disney lot and all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're, we're a smaller studio. We have about 80 uh, that operate. And we, we grow and shrink depending on the kind of work that we have coming in. Um, yeah, so some of the locations are larger than others. Uh, our main hub being in London, that's sort of like a, a bigger situation. But here, um, yeah, we have some small things. I'm curious, what was the what's the difference between Technicolor that was right next to Universal and then it had moved? I mean, is, is it a bigger facility or is it a smaller facility? Uh, that's just a different arm of the business. So oh. um, Technicolor had like a post-production arm of their business and then um, the color side of the business, uh, the film production, all of that. And so we, we are just like a different offshoot. Okay. It's um, film and episodic. There's also like a massive uh, advertising wing of the business and animation production. So it's pretty sprawling. And I think, Paul, what you mentioned you, when you talked about uh, what Mojo had said, something about $30 million, a lot of times they include the advertising. That and that's true. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. outrageous. The, the, I was going to. Yeah, circling back on that, you're absolutely right. Um, 
hoodwink. That's, that is what I think surprises a lot of people. And it's why a film needs to be a certain budget level to justify the spend for all other areas that sort of orbit the film budget. So Hoodwink was made for just under nine, but our, uh, our P&A budget, like the, the marketing budget for it was 40 million. And so that's why they put it out on, uh, you know, over 3000 screens on the first two opening weekends. And so I think that's what is so, um, it's just nonsense sometimes. I mean, we've, we've been to pitch animated features. We pitched at a studio one time and they said, what's your budget? And we said, we think we can make this for 15 million. And they said, don't ever say that again. Don't say it here. You'll mm -hmm. never make this movie. It needs to be 60 and that's considered low budget, you know, and that's very animation. So it's because it has to be a film that justifies the overhead of the machine of the studio, so. Yeah. And for if I remember correctly, Fox and Ridley Scott had a real issue because Fox had said Alien never made the money back because the amount of publicity they had put out for Alien. Mm -hmm. And I believe Ridley Scott went off and had them audited to find out if this was true. Yeah. So it's I, not I, uncommon for films to report that there were there's no profit that was made. and. Um, it has to be challenged in order to be proven otherwise, because they can put a lot on a budget, a lot of extra on that budget. Ray, your questions have kept me from Marvel long enough. All right, here we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I, I mean, I could go, actually, quick Disney question, because I produced the D23 Inside Disney podcast oh, cool. for Disney, co-produce it. Awesome. And you've obviously worked with Marvel. Ray, do you got a tie-in with uh, Disney? Everybody, everybody moves through the mouse house at some point in their career. Ray, I'm sure you have. Oh, God. <gasps> You're talking about that I had it. I mean, I worked at Disney for a little bit. That's what I'm talking was, about. Yeah, it was a very, it was a very short time. I mean, my, my time was mostly with Universal, almost 20 years. But I had, yeah, a little bit at MGM, a little bit at uh, Culver Studios, <laughs> and wow. um, what else? And a little bit at Fox, which I had some very interesting. Which is now Disney. Time. So there you go. See? Yeah, exactly. Take okay. it away from him. You can't check, get away. All I'm saying is check your mortgage. I'm sure their name is on it. And I would love to talk about working on Destino. And if you haven't seen it, go to the uh, Disney Plus where you can stream that amazing short uh, where Disney uh, and Salvador Dali work together uh, in yeah. a, sort of in a past way and then into the present. You really have done your research. That's great. Oh, I love Destino. And uh, Disney feature animation was my first studio gig. So I, I spent... Well, just short of three years there um, doing various work in the post-production department and then in the development department. And Destina was amazing because we got to work with the French studio uh, with basically these old ideas and these old cells that they wanted to finish, um, which was like a, a Walt Disney dream at one time. And uh, we were able to finish with them. So it's very trippy and it won't take Whoa. too much time if you check it out. <laughs> yeah, it's the closest thing to Fantasia that has been turned out by the studio since that. You know, it's really cool. Um, all right, here's another quick rant. Kevin Feige should have an Oscar because <laughs> I don't know how you create this 23 film masterpiece yeah. that's never yeah, been done it, it, before. It's, an, it's, it's a behemoth 
incredible thing. And again, to your point about, hey, it's a cartoon movie. You are not paying attention because not only are the actors doing things like you said that are asked of them that are what would be asked in any drama, but the plots and stories have the most adult themes of loss and trauma and action and excitement and thrills and adventure. It has everything. And if they give one to John Lasseter for creating new territory with Pixar, and if they gave one to Peter Jackson for creating three movies. Yes. Uh, this dude has, has made, like I said, I think it's 23. I'm going to be called out for my numbers maybe, but uh, so I think he should have an Oscar. So here's and then, And I have yeah. to say, and then these episodic runs that are happening right now on Disney plus where it's like, amazing stories that are dropping right in yeah. seamlessly into timelines that you thought were only meant for the features and then you realize there's extra information that the that the episodic stories are telling with wandavision or i can't wait for loki coming up um and definitely like gobbled up winter soldier that just came out so i'm a fan too you know the those episodics when i'm watching uh, winter soldier i felt like i was watching a feature yeah. Oh, totally. Blown away, and and I feel that way a lot of times with with Netflix too, with Mindhunter, and some of these other things that are on Hulu or whatever. You look at these and you go, I feel like this would be in the theater. Yeah. It's amazing That's the production amazing. values and everything. Well, it's yeah. it's something like. Uh... I'm going to throw, I always throw DC under the bus when I start talking about Marvel. But if you look at like Arrow and uh, Flash, and uh, those are TV shows. Marvel, the MCU movies specifically, um, not all of Marvel, but the MCU look like movies on TV. Yes. So that's the difference. And you, Katie, worked on Spider-Man Homecoming, Thor Ragnarok, Avengers Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, uh, in mostly visual effects and previs. Uh, what's it like to get that call? Because you know the things of Behemoth already by Spider-Man Homecoming. They've got you know, 10 years of movies under their belt and are killing it. So are you, what, how, how does that call come your way? And were you a Marvel well, fan Well, I was, yeah, of course. And I'm a movie fan. I mean, that's why yes. I, I, I tell people like, I'm a movie nerd, like first and foremost. So I, I, I know I have to put on a business hat and definitely don't want to act like a total weirdo in meetings and stuff, but I, um, it's not lost on me that these are just really cool films that I would stand in line for, for a ticket any day. Uh, I was really lucky to be working for a company at the time that was contracted to do this work. And um, I remember one of my friends was about to go work on Ant-Man and the Wasp at the time, and he was going with the whole production team to Atlanta. And he said, do you think we'll get to work on this film together? And I was like, oh, no, 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 Marvel special. They only, you know, the company I was working for, they only put certain people on Marvel. It's very secretive and I, and I don't think I'll be seeing you there. And then like two weeks later, I got this opportunity where, where the company actually gave me all of the Marvel films they had at the time um, to be their internal producer on the company and so I was able to go um, to set and I was able to send teams all over the world to work on these really special films. Nice. Um, I was gonna and, ask if you went to set that's cool as hell. Yeah <laughs> very cool um, and I had to like not not have too much caffeine before and just be like whatever whatever it's a movie okay. It's Paul Rudd Chrisette, yeah. a big thing. but inside just like <laughs> I can't take I can't take any pictures I can't tell anyone I've been here. Uh -huh. <laughs> Can't tell anyone anything I've seen. 
but um so about that on the disney podcast we interviewed anthony mackie and when uh, falcon and winter soldier was coming out and talked about the secrets he had to keep and i wasn't aware that he kept the finale he said the hardest one is the finale of infinity war and it had to keep it for two years i didn't know they got that far ahead um where was it for you in terms of uh like did you have to keep a secret that long I did not um, read any scripts, and many times our team was only given select. Uh, even on set, you're seeing stuff, and you got it for right, right, like a year, um, year and a half, or yeah, yeah, I'd wow. say definitely like a year and a half. But for some of that stuff, what's crazy is we were doing previous work for the films that they were shooting together, and so because I didn't have a sense of orientation to the story. I wasn't really sure, like, I knew everything basically was a spoiler, but I didn't know which movie it was for. So when I went to see like Infinity Wars, I so I didn't see some things that I was waiting for. And then I was like, oh, that's not in this one. That's in the <laughs> next one. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the next one that I, I basically only worked on major spoilers and that was it. Those were the only things I had really, worked on before I went to another job. So um, I was, uh, it was like just not being able to tell anybody anything. Sometimes I would say to my kids at home, I'd be like, I saw something super cool today. You will never know what it is. Just know I saw cool things. But still with emotion, because I, I would still probably have to be like, how was the work today? I saw cool things. I enjoyed them. It was fun. Yes. Like repressing everything before yes. I'm going, ah, hulking out, you know. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, so thousands of people working. You watch the end credits, thousands of names are going by. How does that all get organized? Because clearly there's not just one team doing the visual effects. There's multiple. So oh, yeah. is it one, like a visual effect? There's going to be a visual effects coordinator is or are there multiple and who gets yeah. assigned what and how do you know what's coming your way and how does that all because in the end there it is on the screen how does it all get organized i guess yeah it's unbelievable and that's a great question i love those behind the questions that's always where my brain goes it's like how do you do this how there's so many pieces there's so many vendors that work on these movies because they're massive and the timeline would not allow one company to bear the burden of the entire process and so like for some of these movies, there's over 20 vendors that are working on certain things um, when possible sharing assets uh, so that there's consistency throughout and wanting to make sure the finish looks the same um, all the way through the movie. I mean, if you slow-mo through some of these things, some shots are better than others and you, they, they spend the time on the things that are gonna be most impactful. But in terms of the organization, it means that there's a super phenomenal VFX producer with the studio that has a good team uh, around them. Marvel has a tendency to hire female uh, VFX producers um, pretty heavily and has like some real badass ladies over there that right. I've loved working with. And some badass directors as of late too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and are very organized and really keep the trains running on time and um, it's just a lot. So the, it's a it's a massive delegation work, but I think Marvel's done so well because um, they have a very trusted team that's sort of grown, uh, homegrown from the inside and then um, delegates to, you know, trusted team that's uh, done a lot of impressive work over the years. So for my part in, in being 
amongst a, a piece of the machine that's you know working on the vendor side. It's just a matter of good communication, hitting your uh, deliveries, um, making sure that we understand the notes completely so that we don't um, botch the intention of the moment and we're giving uh, options. I mean, it's all about like providing more than enough options when possible so that fast decisions can be made to move forward. And, th and again, all thousands of those people kept quiet. I didn't know about Fat Thor until I sat down in that chair and watched him on screen. I went, how did I not know? And blended Banner Hulk. Like, yeah. insane. Like, I can't believe that kudos to everybody for their fine work and for shutting up. Yeah, I think it's just <laughs> beloved. And I think those crews are made up of film fans, you know, just like you, just like me. Um, and so there's respect for what they do and they can't wait when they finish to work on the next one because they're fans. You know? So it sounds like Marvel took a, step, a huge step forward in hiring women, as you said. I don't know if it's like taking a step forward. I think from its inception, they've had really strong female leadership um, and it's awesome. It's been a, a great experience when I've had- Well, I was saying compared to the other studio. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. perhaps. I've, I've met a lot, of, um, a lot of amazing women in the visual effects industry. Usually though on the producing side, it's a little bit more difficult to, to see those opportunities happening on the creative side with the effects supervisors. I think that's a much more difficult um, place to break into, but on the producing side, I have seen it quite a bit. And you guys always get the time you want because the thing about the Marvel movies is the remarkable consistency and quality. There's no like, uh, there's no forgotten movie. There's no Phantom Menace, there's no Cars 2. Like everything is just hitting, you know? Like they even go back and double down on Thor The Dark World and The Incredible Hulk by bringing in William Hurt from The Incredible Hulk into more movies. And they go back in time to Thor The Dark World and make it even more important, even though people might say it was not one of the best. They start their MCU not with Iron Man and Captain America, but with Wanda Vision and the yeah. Falcon and the Winter. So like their secondary characters get bumped up to high status. So again, what was I talking about? Oh, they always, <laughs> uh, so they always double down and throw, uh, you know, the highest quality into everything. And they turn out, I mean, we're going to get four Marvel movies in the next year, which is incredible, but they're not, none of them are going to look like, oh, this is the one we didn't have enough time to, to work on. But you never felt right. rushed. They find some kind of schedule. Uh, did you find that, that, that was the case? You never felt rushed? Yeah, I, I think one thing that a lot of big successful franchises do well is they're not afraid to uh, highlight what's not working, even if it feels a little close, a little squeaking close to delivery. Um, and that's something that I think you mentioned Kevin Feige, and I, I think that comes from his leadership. If something's not working, like he, he can fix it and he can call it out. And uh, even if the time frame is tight, and that is the challenge in, in the visual effects business and in the, in the teams that we're in, they may be still trying out some looks for things or trying out a tweak on something when it feels pretty darn close. Um, but I think that assessment is what makes it so strong, you know, not, not being afraid uh, to, to change what seems like it's not working. 
Two more things I'd like to get your take on. <clears throat> I know I said, this, if we do this in 30, 40 minutes, you know, we're doing it right. Well, we're doing it wrong because, but there's a lot to talk about. But the Marvel Road Show, uh, this was a, an arena show that you worked on. Oh, yeah. Be, uh... oh, yeah. It was so many years ago. Um, yeah. I just, I worked with a team of investors. Um, my company, Hardy Howell, actually did. And um, my partners, Tim and Todd, were the writers. I was the media producer. And it was a, a team that had um, they had licensed the the Marvel Library to be able to do a live traveling show, and it wasn't with actors and costumes. It was more of a um, digital media show. So there was a a three D movie. There was a four D like motion ride. There were. What was the three D movie called? Uh, it, these were just short like um, five minute experiences. So it was uh -huh. sort of like a traveling circus or like a traveling um like amusement park where you could go and just everything was sort of like a ride or a game so it was all really short short clips so i feel i've seen a short 3d marvel animated movie yeah i wonder what i wonder if i saw it. yeah you know here and there like in vegas or something you know like Right, right. It's that sort of thing that um, in a truck, you know, one of the <laughs> at a fair, you go in. Yeah, and yeah, pit. yeah. Yeah, but that was really fun, and that was actually pre-working on all this other Marvel stuff. Right. Um, so I, it, it all comes back around. Also. Yeah. And then, lastly, uh, we were talking about uh, Chillicothe. Chil oh, Chillicothe. Yeah. Chillicothe. That is a town in Ohio, so that's why the difficult name. <laughs> yeah, that was um, my company's first and first film, independent film, um, and it went to Sundance in '99, which was a cool year. That year was the year of Blair Witch, and it was the year of Run Lola Run, an American movie, like all these really great uh, independent films. And we did get limited distribution there. It was um, a lot of fun to be in Park City for the first time, going to the festival and- Out of the gate, good on you. Yeah, right? that kind of changed. It really changed my life because it tweaked my brain. It tweaked my vision for myself. I was living in Indiana at the time and I was meeting filmmakers and they weren't famous and they weren't rich, but they were making films and um, and generating and writing and just dreaming. And I, I really loved coming up against that, that whole um, film festival community and realizing like, oh, this is, this is attainable. Uh, you can step in and participate at, at any level. It doesn't have to be at the, the level of a Marvel or of a, major franchise um, to be able to be a creative that that can thrive in the business. Yeah, and both uh, Katie and her brother started. <laughs> yeah, a lot of our friends did. Yeah, my brother Todd was the writer, director, and star of it. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of our friends were actors in it, and I was as well. Yeah, there you go. So, I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, you want to be in my movie? It's going to go viral, go to Sundance. Are you? But you did. Good for you. <laughs> I think Char uh, Sundance <laughs> has changed a lot since then. I think the the studios have uh, gotten their hooks in a little bit, where it's um, it's more of a launch pad for studio films. But I think some good some good ones still get through. But it feels like a, a little bit of a different machine uh, at yeah, this point than it did in it's still one I it's one I'm, I have 
people happy to see return after this lockdown. I want to see yeah. the film festival is such a great just vibe. You know, I can't wait for it to return. Yeah. Well, uh, Katie, thank you. And let's get to my final question to ask everybody who comes on the show. What is your favorite movie of all time? Favorite movie. Isn't it so hard to choose one? Well, um, there's cheaters all the time. I got five or <laughs> I'll give you the one I like now, which is not, and none of those are the wrong answer. So yeah, no, I have so many, but there's one that like, I easily say it's my favorite. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. That's my number it. one of all time. It's the greatest movie ever made, right? It is a perfect film. And, um, but I will say, and this is now I'm being like everybody else. I will say, if you want to go with best sequence, I will stay within the trilogy, even though I don't feel like the movie is as good by any comparison, but the opening sequence to the second one, Temple of Doom, to me, um, when uh, Kate Capshaw's singing Anything Goes, that sequence to me is like one of the best sequences in film. I, I saw it. that. There's and a, you can yeah. see now where Spielberg wants to make West Side Story already. He's got a musical yeah. in him and now it's finally going to He's finally going to see that through. Um, yeah. being, oh, I, I was just going to say, being a movie guy, I have to say that I don't believe Raiders would have ever been made if it hadn't been for Lawrence of Arabia or Gunga Din, which you can see the influences that it is on Raiders. So, and I love both those movies. Well, it's a great thing about 60s or 60s, 70s and 80s, early 80s, you know, mostly 70s, but into the 80s action movies still have a classic tone to them you know star wars is my favorite star wars movie because it reeks of david lean while at the same time being action adventure you know now it's just all how can we keep your attention please don't look away from the television you know because you're probably watching this home at home you know <laughs> which is a shame but you know yeah raiders I is a jam I had the thrill of um, over the years from time to time getting to know Howard Kazanjian, who was one of the producers on oh, Raiders. Oh yeah. And yes. I hadn't really told him it was my favorite film yet, but we were sitting in his home office and I looked down under the glass of the coffee table and there was this little fold up um, clothes hanger. And I was like, is, is this the clothes hanger from Raiders? And he took it out and put it together. And I was like, oh my gosh. And then I, just, I just had to like not be cool at all. And I was like, do you know, I think that is a perfect film. And he's like, I think so too. So it was nice that uh, he could still be a fan even though he worked on it too. Yeah, it, it has what, because that's a funny bit, right? Um, yeah. Yet it doesn't derail the stakes. Like there's so much comedy in action movies nowadays, even in the later Indiana right. Jones movies that just- you, It gets a little all, like- yeah, yeah. we have to maintain the tension and the stakes and everything is real and it's going to be trouble and then have fun within that whereas now it's just like oh we need comedy and that's like well that's not the best reason to have it <laughs> you know <laughs> raiders blended all that stuff together the most iconic hero of all time the greatest actor i've i grew up with you know and yeah even the effects i mean hold up in a way there's a couple of green screens that are a little loopy but mostly it's insanely good for, yeah it's you know. so good if it it's on if i just happen to catch it on even though i know like every second that's going to happen or if it happens to be showing like in a theater i got to see it you know it's projected 70 millimeter a few years ago it's like i'm going to go i'm going to end up and i'm going to go and i'm going to enjoy like 
every heartbeat of the film that I already know, but I'm still gonna love it. I see it in the theater every year. That's why I live here. Even last year with the stupid uh, lockdown, I saw it at a drive-in. So wow. yeah, every year That's some great. somewhere somebody shows it somewhere. So. <laughs> Well, uh, you went out on a high note, Katie. That wraps another TMG interview. Follow us uh, Twitter at The Movie Guys, Facebook.com slash The Movie Guys, iTunes, Instagram, Apple Podcasts, uh, all that nonsense for daily jokes, articles, media, links, and more. Thank you, Katie. What social of yours can we plug? Is there anything that, where people can follow you, your doings? Yeah. If they want to, I'm on Instagram. I'm just Katie Hooten on Instagram. Katie Hooten. What about Hardy Howe? Hardy Hell, yeah, com. <laughs> Thank you, Bray. You're you. welcome. Yeah, then there's that. <laughs> then there's like the life goal. That's my no, life's Hardy. work, yeah. Where'd Hardy you get that name, Hardy Howell? Oh man, how much time do you have? Um, we <laughs> used to operate under a different title and over the years um, we had different partners come and go from that company. But um, about 10 years ago, we decided to come up with a name uh, that had a bit of a quirk and a bit of a character to it, but at the same time, um, that collective feeling when you go to the movies, which is, mm. you know, a howl could be a laugh, it could be uh, something startling or terrifying, but something that is collective that happens when you're in the theater. So um, that's been a, a bit of a mission uh, for the stuff that we make that it uh, has some sort of trans Informational component to when you are exposed to the stories, you feel a part of them. So. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. And, and what was the dot com on that? Was it dot com? Uh, or yeah. or no? Partyhell.com. There it is. Uh, and as ever, you can find what we're up to at the movieguys.net, including Ray's pick of the week every week for what he finds on uh, the Blu ray or 4K disc that he likes. Uh, and check it all out there. Thanks, Katie. Thank, Thank you, you so much.